The Tom Woods Show, episode 1158. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, if you are not on my legendary email list, you are missing out on all sorts of inner circle goodness. Hop on that list and get a free ebook at the same time over at tomsfreebooks.com. Hi, everybody. Tom Woods here. I'm very glad to be joined today by Joanna Williams, who is the author of the brand new book, Women Versus Feminism, Why We All Need Liberating from the Gender Wars. And this is not another one of these content-free, angry polemics of the sort we encounter, frankly, on both sides of this kind of debate from time to time. It's um, much more well, restrained in its rhetoric and in its presentation, but its argument is no less compelling for all that. Joanna Williams is an author, commentator, and the education editor at Spiked. She is the author of Academic Freedom in an Age of Conformity, as well as Consuming Higher Education, Why Learning Can't Be Bought. Joanna, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. In reading your book, I was struck by the tone. I expected in a book like this to be hit over the head with a brutal polemic. And a polemic, no doubt, I would have cheered. But instead, what I encountered is a a fairly measured and reasonable tone. I don't suppose that your opponents or critics will uh, perceive that quite the way I did, but that it came through quite clearly to me, and it seems to me like a deliberate move on your part. I think... In part, it was. Um, One of the things I wanted to do very deliberately was to take some of the um, emotion or, dare I say it, even irrationality out of some of the debates that creeps into feminism. So I've noticed in particular with discussions around the gender pay gap, um, some of the arguments that I would get into with people about it and you would I would present them with various facts and statistics around the gender pay gap and their final retort would be but I believe in the gender pay gap and for me that really summed up a particular direction in which feminism has gone where women's oppression becomes much more an article of faith um, a belief rather than anything that's actually substantiated with evidence nowadays And I guess one of the things I wanted to do with my book was just really say it's not good enough just to believe that you're oppressed or to hold on to this as an article of faith. Actually, we do need to look at some of the facts and some of the statistics about what's going on in the world today. What's your background that led you to not only to writing this book, but to the beliefs that you hold today? Mm-hmm. So um, my background's in education and actually in most recently in academia. So I guess that's another explanation for the uh, perhaps less polemical tone of the book. Uh, so that's in a way given me some of the insight that I have about women's situation nowadays because it always struck bizarre to read all these stories and hear all these accounts of women being uh, this oppressed group in society and then to look around the university campus where I was up until fairly recently spending most of my time 
and it's so dominated by women. So women students make up by far the biggest proportion of students at universities in the UK now. And I know that's the same in, US, in the US and in many countries around the world today. Um, but, but not just that, women are um, so much more represented on faculty in senior management positions, at every level of the university, there are more women than men. And it kind of made me think, you know, if women really are supposed to be so oppressed, how come they're doing so well in education? And also, what happens to women after they go to university? Does this success suddenly stop or does it actually carry on with women um, into their professional lives? And that was definitely the conclusion that I came to, that it does carry on as well. Well, as long as we're on the subject of education, why don't we talk a bit about chapter one of your book, which deals precisely with this. And it is interesting to note just how much success girls in school have been having. And we see that in a variety of metrics that then persist into the college years in terms of how many women as opposed to men are in college. But what's more interesting to me even than that are is the analysis you have toward the end of that chapter about why this may be the case. Now, of course, it could be that old barriers are being struck down and women now have more opportunities. Certainly, there's there's something to that narrative, but also you're suggesting there's something about what has happened to the nature of education itself over the past several decades that could likewise help to account for this and maybe not in such a positive way. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I, I describe it in the book, I think, as a, almost as a therapeutic ethos that's crept into education where emotions um, really are center stage in the classroom. And I think that comes into uh, higher education as well, where people are asked to bring their emotional self into the classroom and to um, talk about how they feel and can be given academic credit for having that emotional response to a particular subject matter. But I think this starts really in the very earliest days of schooling, where there are rewards, if you like, for not just not just being emotional, that would be the wrong way to look at it, but a certain emotional correctness, if you like, I think that's the best way. So we we hear a lot of talk about political correctness, um, but I think in education, there's a certain emotional correctness where people are rewarded not just for good behavior, and I think that's how it starts off, um, but also for having the correct emotional responses. And I think for a whole variety of reasons, um, girls are far more tuned into this than boys. So, in terms of behavior, it takes the form of, of sitting nicely, of having good handwriting, of being generally neat and obedient and biddable. And I think girls very, very quickly pick up on the fact that they get rewarded for this kind of, of, of good behavior, if you like. Whereas I think boys, certainly when they start school at the age of four, five or six, um, are still a little bit boisterous. And I, personally, I don't see anything wrong with that. Still have a bit of energy that they want to run off in the playground. And I think they should be allowed to do that. But I think it soon moves beyond just a, a kind of behavior correctness into this emotional correctness when children have lessons about, um, say, anti-bullying initiatives and or um, fair trade is a big topic in the UK, a school system, 
or um, the learning about, say, another topic that's quite popular in the UK is the idea of global citizenship, where the actual aim is to demonstrate empathy with other people. And say, for example, in a literature class, it's no longer the case in, in many literature lessons where children are asked to, uh, say, analyze the text in a linguistic way, but they're more looking at the emotional responses of the characters to draw out lessons about racism or bullying or protecting the environment, for example. And I think girls are much quicker than boys to pick up on the correct emotions that they're expected to demonstrate. And I think in the short term, this does girls a lot of good in the sense that they're rewarded. They get the the stickers and the uh, merit points and they get the exam certificates. But I do think in the long run, it's perhaps a bit more problematic because when you enter the world of work, if you're working in a business and particularly if you get quite high up in, the, in a business, then the qualities that are needed are not conformity, emotional correctness, but are much more risk-taking And I think that's where perhaps women are let down a little bit by the education system as it is at the moment. I think there's always been an element of promoting conformity in the schools, but it's interesting to note the different ways in which that has intensified and that that has uh, that's happened alongside this interesting trend with regard to women and women's achievement, uh, which is not. I, I have an audience that, by and large, would be appalled by these aspects. This is precisely what they dislike about the government's role in education is, is precisely this cookie-cutter type of approach in, in which individuality is subordinated to expectations of conformity and obedience. Now, I want to, if, if you, just with your indulgence here, given that the gender pay gap comes up so much, I have covered that rather a lot on the program. So even though that is one of the main topics, I'd because I have such a limited time with you, I'd like to talk instead about some topics we haven't hit so much here on the program. And I'm looking at your – on page 102 of your book, you have a, a section called Inflated Claims. And here you're arguing that so much of what we might call women's studies or feminist studies winds up being advocacy research, winds up being pursuing a conclusion that's known in advance – and you give examples of this, and I'd like to talk in particular about – well, in fact, right here in your sentence you say uh, – you talk about surveys purporting to show that women are victims of everything from rape culture to online harassment and sexualized bullying at school. Well, I may not be convinced about rape culture, but those other things don't sound immediately preposterous to me. So what is the truth of the matter? The In terms of sexualized bullying at school – Yes, and, and indeed online harassment. Ah, yes, yeah. Well, I think the problem is, uh, uh, well, I think there are a number of problems with the research that's conducted into these areas. So often you see, I would say what I'm terming as advocacy research is research that reaches out to a specific section of the population. So they take self-selecting samples, for example, who would like to complete this online survey. So it's hardly stopping 
seeing random people in the street that they are loading the survey right from the start by seeking out people who've got an interest in in such a topic. And then often what they do is to lump together all kinds of behaviors. So I think if you look at online harassment, for example, personally, I think there's a huge conflation nowadays between bullying, um, between criticism and between abuse. And I think those three things are actually very, very separate things. To me, bullying is something for school. Any adult who says that they're being bullied personally, I think, should be embarrassed. I think I don't think bullying is a proper term to use for adult behavior. Um, I think criticism is something that takes place an awful lot in online forums. And, you know, I think part of that if you put yourself out there, as I do on a regular basis, if you are going to express your views online, then criticism is a fair part of what you expect. And to me, that's that's life, you know, and, and that's part of being an adult, of having social media and being able to take part in debates, which is a real opportunity, I think, and, and far more positive um, lots, lots that we can gain from being able to do that. But I think there's a real conflation between criticism, bullying and abuse. And um, we look at things like uh, rape threats online, for example. They often turn out to be not credible. Um, some surveys of online abuse have actually shown that most uh, of the abuse itself has actually come from women directed at other women which is, is perhaps counter to what we might expect. So I think the real danger of advocacy research is that we conflate different types of behavior. We ask self-selecting um, groups. And sometimes we don't ask people if they have experienced particular things themselves, but we ask them to describe examples. And then the researchers will categorize it and will say, oh, so if you've experienced this, then that's abuse. And you might be like, well, wait, hang on a second. I, I don't think that was abuse. Oh, no, no, you will be told. Uh, or the researcher will make that decision on your behalf and put that uh, under the heading of abuse. And I think the real danger with this type of research is it does uh, simply serve one purpose, which is to promote the cult of victimhood. It allows more and more people to come to define themselves as victims. And I think feminist advocacy research has the sole purpose of allowing often middle class, privileged women who are doing really very well for themselves. It allows them an opportunity to apply the label victim to themselves. And, and I think that's really unhelpful. I actually think it's really unhelpful for women. Well, that makes me curious about your views of the Me Too movement. I've heard a number of people say this thing is turning into a witch hunt and it's gone too far. But at the same time, it does seem that it's uncovered a pattern of a lot of men and in many cases influential men who in their private lives are moral pigs. <laughs> I think that's a very diplomatic way of putting it. I think certainly there are a few men who I think I probably wouldn't have wanted to have been around. 
But I think Me Too, I don't think uh, has gone too far. I don't think it's turning into a witch hunt. I think it's been problematic right from the get-go. I don't think there's anything positive about Me Too whatsoever. I think it's been riddled with problems right from the very first time somebody put those two little words into Twitter. Um, I think it is a really good example of a victim bandwagon that more and more people, more and more women are finding themselves able to jump aboard. And um, I think there are so many problems with it. I think one problem is that it overturns the the long-standing presumption of innocent until proven guilty. And what you have in effect nowadays is trial by social media, where people are found guilty on the court of Twitter long before they get anywhere near a court of law. And you've got people's jobs and livelihoods and reputations being absolutely trashed on the basis of a few tweets. I think that's one problem with it. I think another problem with the whole Me Too movement is that it's it's conflated all kinds of different behaviours. So in the UK, we've had an example of um, a quite major senior politician who was, uh, well, uh, he's no longer a senior politician, let's say, but suddenly one of the accusations levelled against him was that 10 years ago, he touched a journalist's knee <laughs> or, or somebody else went in for an attempted kiss again a decade ago. Now, these were with uh, journalists. These were not um, timid little, uh, certainly not, not children by any stretch of the imagination. And I think there's a real danger of conflating um, some of the, you look at some of the very, very serious accusations leveled against Harvey Weinstein with some of the unwanted knee-touching allegations, um, hugs that have lingered a, a nanosecond too long, or the, uh, the kind of bad date scenario. I think that actually trivializes rape and it trivializes some of the far more serious crimes. But again, the beauty of it is allowing everybody to perceive of themselves as a victim in, in some ways. So I think, yes, we can maybe say, isn't it good that somebody like Harvey Weinstein has got his comeuppance? Although I, even there, you know, I hesitate because I do think that innocent until proven guilty is a very, very fundamental tenet of our law. Um, but I think Me Too has done far more harm to women than it has done any benefits at all. When you say that Sometimes this kind of thing will trivialize rape or it'll conflate together behaviors that are really quite distinct from one another. At the same time, it seems to me that there has been an interest among feminists precisely in blurring what rape really is and making it uh, apply in all kinds of situations in which most people would not think that rape has occurred because how else are they going to reach clearly and obviously preposterous figures like the ones we hear repeated on college campuses about the frequency of rape that these we know from it, it's it's like there were examples in the early 90s in the United States and I'm sure there have been since but I was only studying them back then where people would go on the news and say it's a it's it's a horrible uh, epidemic in America, but 12 million American children are starving. I remember that statistic in particular. 12 million are starving. I thought, how can that be? I, I, I live in America, yeah. and I've never seen a single 
starving child. How could this be? So the methodology, it turns out, the method they used was they asked children, did you go to bed hungry at any time during the year 1991? <laughs> and if you said yes, then you were classified as starving. Now, there obviously, there's obviously advocacy behind that. There's obviously a bunch of policies. There's obviously uh, an agenda behind that. And it seems to me the same thing is going on with rape. They want to remake society. And in order to do that, they have to demonstrate that sexual assault by men against women is baked into the very warp and woof of society. Now, how are they doing that? Well, I think you're absolutely right. And uh, first of all, just a very, very quick comment on your starving child thesis, because we have absolutely this in the UK as well, uh, where there's lots of panic about children um, being hungry. And we have, I don't know if you've got the same thing in the US, um, it, they're called food banks, where people who don't have any money can go and actually get some food. And this is held up as a, a shocking indictment on our society that we have children who are so undernourished that their parents are needing to resort to food banks. And yet without any irony whatsoever, on Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday, we can have a panic about starving children and food banks. And then on Thursday, Friday and Saturday, we have a panic about the obesity crisis and children being overweight. So you kind of think, well, hang on a minute. How can both of these things be true? Either these children are starving or they're obese, uh, but actually you can't have both. Or, or to my mind, I don't see how you can have both. So I think you're completely right. There are statistics and uh, these statistics are used and skewed in a particular way. And it is absolutely the exact same thing that's going on to prove the existence of not just a rape culture on campus, but I think one of the main aims as I see it, of the Me Too movement has been a redefinition of rape. And I think this is why we see so much emphasis and discussion of the concept of consent at the moment. So we have this very, very bizarre situation in um, UK higher education at the moment, where there's a lot of emphasis on teaching um, students when they first arrive at university about consent but the consent classes are actually compulsory. So you don't get to consent to whether or not you go to these classes, you're corralled into these classes. And I think it does concern me, The uh, well, a number of things concern me about this redefinition of rape that's taking place. Uh, one thing is that it does become a, a self-fulfilling prophecy, I think, because if you teach young adults when they're leaving home and discovering sex and relationships for the first time, that there is a right way to have sex with someone, to negotiate, if you like, getting someone into bed, that these formal scripts must be rehearsed and that if you haven't gone through this formal negotiation process, um, this conversation where you um, ask and answer what you're going to do when, before you've done it, um, then you do encourage. The reality is that's not what young people do when they're alone together. But if you tell people repeatedly that if you have had sex with someone and that person did not stop and formally negotiate and go through this rehearsed script with you, then you have been raped. Then young women 
do come to see themselves as being victims of rape. Obviously, it, it completely changes legal definitions of rape, but it, it does create this, this idea that rape is highly prevalent in society and that all young men are perpetrators and all young women are victims in waiting. More with Joanna Williams after this brief message. Folks, if you're like me, you love to read, but you have more than you can possibly handle. Plus, I like to read business and marketing books these days, and frankly, 90% of those books are fluff. I don't have time for that. Well, our sponsor, Blinkist, has solved this problem. Blinkist is the only app that takes thousands of the best-selling nonfiction books and distills them down to the critical information you must know, so you can read or listen to them in under 15 minutes all on your phone. I'm always driving our five daughters one place or another, and on my way back, I'm listening to Blinkist in the car. The Blinkist library is massive, from timeless classics like Think and Grow Rich to current bestsellers like Skin in the Game. My personal recommendation is to check out Will It Fly by Pat Flynn. It's a great little book that helps you figure out whether you should pursue a business idea. It saves you the time and trouble of pursuing one that isn't going to pan out. Right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash Woods to start your free trial or get three months off your yearly plan when you join today. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash Woods to start your free trial or get three months off your yearly plan. Blinkist.com slash Woods. Where does the idea of rape culture come from? Because I don't see any part of American society that glorifies rape. So maybe it's a more subtle concept than I'm able to perceive. Yeah, in the UK, it's been held up in song lyrics, for example. Um, so uh, there's a, a guy, he, he is from the US, I'm sure your listeners will have heard of him, uh, Robin Thicke. Uh, he did a song, this is a few years ago now, and the song was called Blurred Lines. And it became a very popular song in the UK. And it was banned, actually banned from about, well, more than 20 different universities banned this song because the lyrics were said to promote a rape culture. Um, posters, um, pictures that objectify women, all of these things are said to uh, add to um, a, a culture that condones rape, that says that rape is acceptable. Um, we've also had uh, three separate cases just in the past uh, probably about two months of students from three separate universities in the UK, male students um, being expelled or, or, you know, essentially thrown out of university, off their university course um, for having made inappropriate jokes about rape. So, these were on private online forums. They've, they've made, I mean, not nice at all, not the types of jokes I would find funny, not the kind of jokes I would like to think that my son would make. Um, but essentially, they've not raped anyone. They've not touched a woman inappropriately. It's an entirely linguistic crime and it's a crime on a private social media forum of having told an inappropriate joke that included the word rape. And again, this is the idea that this contributes to and adds to a rape culture. But again, I, you know, I think one of the biggest problems with this is that if you see rape everywhere, you know, if rape is in song lyrics and scenes from films and in 
jokes and everywhere, then again, you know, it's very hard to say when and where a real crime is committed. Again, I think it dilutes the concept of rape. It trivializes it by saying it's actually something that's everywhere. And of course, the reason why they do have to say, or the the feminist campaigners behind these initiatives, the reason why they do have to say there's a rape culture and rapes everywhere is precisely because they can't point to an actual increase in the incidence of rape, the statistical increase in rape. The reason why we have to have the um, kangaroo courts on campus is because most of the cases that come forward of, of rape on campus wouldn't stand up in a court of law off campus. Let me share with you my theory about where this idea came from, why they insist on the existence of rape culture. And you tell me if I'm completely off base. If if there's a criticism that American society has one little problem with it, but you know, if only we could engage in a little bit of education, we might be able to overcome that problem, you're not going to be able to bring about the systematic ideological transformation of a society. But if you say that a an inclination toward uh, violence against women if, of the the most horrifying sort is deeply embedded in the culture then that does seem to justify a root and branch remaking of that entire society from top to bottom ideologically philosophically socially in every way imaginable and therefore you have to make this stick because then you'll be and only then will you potentially have the chance to engage in the total transformation of society that you seek. Now, am I, is that just wildly off the mark? The only, the only slight disagreement that I have with you on that is just, I'm not convinced it's, it's that consciously thought through. I think there's a slight danger that we uh, give these people too much credit, (laughs) if you like, for having worked out something uh, in advance and then putting it into operation. I do think some of the uh, feminists who are most behind propagating a view of rape culture, I think sadly, um, perhaps unfortunately, I think they do genuinely believe it. I think they do come to see rape everywhere and they do come to see every interaction between men and women as being somehow poisonous or a a symptom of oppression and inequality. So, I mean, just to give you one example, I think one of the parties to this example is from the US. The other is a guy who is a professor at a university in London. Your listeners might be aware of this. It's been in the news quite a bit over here in the past few days, but it was an academic conference. I think it was in San Francisco. This was a week ago. Uh, Various conference attendees in the elevator, including a female professor of gender studies from a university in in the US and this um, male professor from the UK. The attendant in the elevator said, which floor please? And the male professor from the UK said, the ladies' lingerie floor please. Which is a rather weak joke, but 
hey, it's just that. It's just a rather weak joke. The female professor of gender studies took huge offense by this. Obviously, she was so outraged that she couldn't bring herself to speak and say anything in the moment. Um, She had to wait until the event had passed and then go and complain to the conference organizers. But This has now sparked this huge controversy where the man, thank goodness, I think is refusing to back down and apologize. But the woman is standing by this as a terrible symptom of oppression. She says it's exhausting. This is the word that I've noticed activists use more and more nowadays. It's exhausting having to deal with this routine oppression and we need to stamp these things out. My fear is that they genuinely believe it. You know, they're not going away thinking, well, if I chip away here and chip away there, I can bring about a full scale change in society. I think they come to genuinely see themselves as being oppressed. And this is why I, I am so concerned about the impact of things like Me Too particularly on young women nowadays, because you've got this complete contradiction, I think, between, as we were talking about at the beginning in relation to education, all the many, many opportunities and advantages that young women have today. And yet this narrative that constantly tells them that they're victims in every walk of life. And and I think the real danger is that they do come to believe this and see themselves in this way and kind of go through life. Um, When you believe you're a victim, you do go through life responding to everything that happens to you as kind of confirmation of, of the way that you see yourself and see the world. And of course, in the old days when more men than women went to college and perhaps their educational outcomes might even have been better, that would have been a grounds for complaint. Now the exact opposite is true and it's as if no change has been made. It's it, the, the, the shrillness is even greater than before. Yet if, if, the, if the statistics were reversed, we'd be hearing complaints about that. So it's, um, it's not quite clear what exact outcome it is that they want to see is that what is the outcome they want to see if 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 society were to operate according to their rules what do they expect it to look like (laughs) i think that's a great question and unfortunately it's not one i've got a clear answer to i mean it seems to me at the moment that with every victory that feminism has uh, comes a search for new sites of inequality. So you can say there are more, more women than men in higher education overall, but then they'll say, well, yes, but science is still dominated by men. And then you can say, well, there's more women in veterinary science. There's more women in medicine, in psychology, in biology, in biochemistry. They'll say, oh, yes, but those science subjects, they don't count. (laughs) What we really mean is is engineering and physics. And they kind of narrow and narrow down and, and are constantly seeking out new um, sites to prove this thesis that that women are still oppressed nowadays, and and this is why things like the Me Too movement have to look for, I, I would say, more and more trivial 
examples of male behavior. So in the UK, I mean, you might not believe this, but I promise it's true. In the UK, we've had a member of parliament trying to make make new legislation to outlaw street harassment of women, which, you know, you might think sounds sensible. No woman wants to walk down the street and be harassed. But this, this kind of includes whistling, you know, being whistled at by a man as you walk down the street, as if this is supposed to be such a traumatic thing that a woman, you know, would I just be so exhausted by having to deal with this constant barrage of whistles? You think, well, in no, no society that I've experienced is that actually the case. Um, so you, you're constantly having to shift the goalposts, it seems to me, to, to justify this oppression thesis. What's your website? Uh, so that is Joanna Williams, all one word, dot org. Nice and simple. Well, the book is Women Versus Feminism, Why We All Need Liberating from the Gender Wars. I'll be linking to it at tomwoods.com slash 1158 for episode 1158. And Joanna, thanks so much for your time and best of luck with the with the book. Excellent. It's been such a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you. All right, folks, here is a bit of a taste of the diversity of folks who listen to The Tom Woods Show. This is a message from Max Sklar, whom I know a bit online. He's a machine learning engineer, as well as a Tom Woods Show listener and the host of a podcast called The Local Maximum. And as he explains it, the phrase local maximum is a mathematical term. It refers to a point at which you need to step down in order to reach new heights. But people, not just points, can get caught in a local maximum. That means they've gone as far as they can through one strategy, which has gone stale, and they need to search for new ideas. In product design and machine learning, we sometimes ask if we're in a local maximum and whether starting from a fresh perspective can lead to better results. So this podcast is about examining technology, engineering, and social trends through the lens of expanding perspectives and moving beyond the local maximum, both for ourselves and for our algorithms. For example, sometimes I'll interview engineers and entrepreneurs I admire who have actually built something valuable that most people wouldn't have thought of or who have ideas I want to explore further. I go over techniques to understanding the world of AI and machine learning that an average person can understand, and I show how to get our algorithms to be more flexible through the same process we use on people. I can also use my unique experience to examine current events. For example, you may have heard a lot about censorship in our social networks, from Facebook trying to moderate hate speech to YouTube demonetizing videos. It's likely that the perspective you've heard is from the creators themselves who have been affected. But as someone who has worked on these algorithms and worked with these large-scale systems, I can help you understand what these companies are facing internally, what their competing interests are, and why their attempts at a technical solution may be failing, all while providing potential solutions. Again, the podcast is called The Local Maximum, and I put out a new episode every week on SoundCloud, iTunes, and many other platforms. Check it out at localmaxradio.com. I will link to localmaxradio.com at tomwoods.com slash 1158. And you know the drill, of course. You want to get publicity for your online project, then make sure and get your hosting at my link, and you get this and many other bonuses. Check that out at tomwoods.com slash publicity. A couple of controversial episodes coming your way the next couple of days. I don't know if I'll lose a few listeners over them or not. If I haven't lost you by now, probably that's not going to happen. But, you know, look, you never know. But I got I to gotta be me, right? It is called The Tom Woods Show. I got to be me. See what you think in the next couple episodes. And thanks so much for listening. 
Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time.